You're here today because of Jesus. And I, and I don't mean here today as in your existence as a human, though that is true. I mean, you're here today at church or watching online. You're here because of Jesus, because of an interest in Jesus, because of Christianity. That, that's why we're here. And, and the Christian life is, is many different things. And we can think of it in, in categories, and this is uh, simplistic and maybe doesn't even include everything, but the Christian life has rituals in it, and those might be things like coming to church, those may be things like baptism and communion, those may be things even like reading the Bible and prayer, that there's certain kind of rituals that we practice, and I don't mean that word in a, in a negative sense, but certain things that, that we do on a consistent basis. The Christian life could be thought of even in terms of relationships, that there's community. And some of you, maybe that's even why you're here. You're looking for community. You're looking for relationships. Uh, the Christian life is relationships, whether that's the friends next to you or even uh, for those of you that are parents that have kids even today in the back that you want them to develop relationships. And you can think of a relationship even with God. And the Christian life could be thought of as rules to some extent of certain ethical positions that we say, okay, I live my life this way because I'm a Christian. I want to ultimately love God and love neighbor, that there's certain rules that we seek to or, or ways we seek to think about things, that there's rituals, there's relationships, there's rules. There's a lot of different ways kind of just to say, okay, the Christian life has all these different parts, but I want to kind of get underneath that today. And I really think that the text we're going to look at really gets underneath even to some of the foundation to say, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What is really at the heart? What does it actually mean to live as a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have life with Jesus. What does that actually mean? Not, not just kind of uh, losing the forest for the trees that they say, right? Yes, the Christian life has certain components and parts and categories that, that we can break things up into, but what does it actually mean to live as a Christian? What is underneath it all? What does it mean to follow him and have life with him? And, and really, I, I don't think there's any more important question that, that we can ask. I don't think there's any more important question that we can ask to say, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus, to have life with Jesus? What does it actually mean, instead of just looking at the, the disconnected parts, what does it actually mean? Some of you are facing challenges in your life right now, and you need to know the answer to this question. You're facing difficulties, you're facing hard things, and, and you need to know, what does it actually mean in the middle of this, to be a Christian, to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, to have life, what does it mean? Some of you are just kind of starting out your life in some area, maybe just starting out having kids, maybe just starting out your marriage, maybe just starting a new job, maybe you just moved to Denver, you're just kind of starting something, and it's important there to say, okay, if I'm going to begin this, what does it mean to have Life with Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in all of these areas that are just beginning? Because we, we want to get it right at the beginning and not have to correct later. Some of you, I think it's actually not necessarily you're thinking about starting off, but, and even age-wise, uh, some of you are at a quarter-life point 
or depending on how long you lived, you know that the average expectancy of a male is only 76 years. For those of you that are older, you've got a handful of years left. For those of you that are uh, 35 and think you're just kind of starting life off, you're already middle age. And it's almost over, guys. But um, not that middle age is almost over if you're middle aged. But some of you are kind of at that mid-life point. And you've already started some things. You've already started your career. You've already started maybe marriage and parenting. And you've kind of already started some of these things. And, and a lot of times at that midlife point, we, we need to say, okay, I've been a Christian. Maybe you've even been a Christian for a while. But is, am I just kind of living in these disconnected things, some rituals here, some relationships here, some rules here? What does it really mean? to follow Jesus. I want to make sure that I, I do that for the rest of my life and, and not just kind of rely on some things I maybe learned when I was a kid and have just kind of gone through with different traditions and the motions. Some of you maybe are not Christians. And today, really, I, I want to just, this is kind of the fine print. And not really the fine print, but you know, you go maybe look at a house or you look at an apartment. Uh, maybe you even go to a job and do an interview. And Usually the beginning is sort of like, this is amazing. This is the best place you'll ever live. This is the best job you'll ever have. And you're like, okay, okay, I'm interested. And then you kind of sign the paperwork. Okay, now let me just tell you this is actually going to cost this much, and there's actually this and this and this and this. Like, okay, okay. That's, we're past the sales pitch, and this is the real, the real thing. Some of you are not Christians, and today is maybe going to be the, the fine print that you are looking for. What is this whole Jesus thing actually about? What, what am I actually in investigating? What am I actually signing up for? Some of you, maybe it's just uh, even thinking about your kids. I know I talked about starting things off, but even just to speak directly to those of you that are parents, you want to you help your kids actually know Jesus if you're a Christian. You want to help your kids actually know what it means to follow Jesus and have life with Jesus. Not just to do, again, just sort of Christian things, rituals, relationships, rules. But you want them to actually know what it means to follow Jesus. So all of those different things today, I believe, is a really important day. If you're not a Christian and you're investigating things, this is going to lay it all out there. And you'll walk away today with some stuff to think about. And if you're a Christian... I don't necessarily want to use the language wake-up call, although I just said it, so part of me wants to say that. But I, I do want to say this. I want to say it's helpful to assess whether you're struggling, whether you're starting things out, whether you're raising kids, kind of whatever the thing is for you that, that is important for today, I do want you to really listen today to hear Jesus saying, Here's what life with me is. Here's what it means to be a disciple. Here's what it means to follow me. If we have life with Jesus as a disciple, every area in our life is then experienced the way it's supposed to be. If we, have, if we get life with Jesus right, it's the sun and everything else orbits around that. If we get that wrong, though, if we miss what that is, then everything in our life kind of starts to collide and it doesn't quite work. And you, and you can't just have kind of various components of what it means to be a Christian. You need to get the center right so that everything revolves and orbits correctly. 
And the Bible's emphasis on this is you will not drift into getting this right. You won't drift into kind of, you won't just kind of figure it out of what does it mean to, to have life with Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus and to, to understand life with him. We don't naturally just drift towards that. That is the emphasis over and over again. That, that won't just happen. In fact, even now, probably even as I speak, and even this week in your life, many things are seeking to pull you out of orbit, are seeking to pull you away from the core, the center of what Jesus is going to say today. We often miss it because of that. So the question for today is really just what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean, the forest instead of the trees, what does it mean to follow Jesus, to have life with Jesus? What does it mean? What does it look like? So we're going to look at four different things, the, the problem of discipleship and the pattern of discipleship, the power, the promise. That's what we're going to look at. I'll read this text in Luke, and then we'll look at each of these things. About Jesus, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, John the Baptist was a prophet of the day. Elijah was one of the great Old Testament prophets. Still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, those are the religious leaders of the day, be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. The Son of Man is another title that Jesus uses for himself. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here, the disciples he's speaking with, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, don't read that to say they won't taste death until... Um, until they see heaven or something like that. But the kingdom of God, Jesus is always talking about through Luke to talk about the power of God coming. And so to see the kingdom of God would be, some commentators would be to say uh, what happens next, we'll show you in a second, or to just talk about everything that's already taking place as the kingdom is breaking in there, the healing and the preaching and the, the demons fleeing, all of that. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James. Again, this is Jesus' inner circle that he has been developing. And went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Another gospel says so white that, that no bleach in the world could make it so white. So if you need that kind of laundry soap, you can, you know, starting a business, you can call it transfiguration bleach or something. And suddenly, two men were talking with him. Moses 
and Elijah. And they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those who were with him were in a deep sleep. I love this. Every time something important is happening, their disciples are just sleeping. So if you ever feel guilty of like you're starting to pray or maybe even at church and you fall asleep, at least you're in good company with Jesus' inner circle. The most amazing moments happening. And Jesus is like, guys, do you see this? And they're like sleeping. I don't think Jesus was actually like, guys, do you see this? But and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared. A cloud is often the presence of God in the Old Testament and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud and then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. Let's begin with this. This gets us to the core of really what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian, to have life with him. The problem of discipleship, or we could say what gets in the way of this calling that Jesus gives to us. And as a Christian, if you're a Christian, what gets in the way of your discipleship, of life with him? What's the problem? And We want, and if you're a Christian, or again, if you're just exploring or interested, we are interested in or we want to follow Jesus. I mean, it talks often about many people wanting to follow Jesus. Crowds are coming to him, right? Think about the thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people that were oftentimes around Jesus. And yet, at the end of his death, resurrection, it says there was about 120 people that were his disciples, because something gets in the way. We want to follow Jesus, and many people did, but there is a problem. There is stuff that gets in the way, and oftentimes the most dangerous thing to our following of Jesus or our discipleship with Jesus, oftentimes the most dangerous stuff that will pull us away from that, we miss. We might think that it is Satan, and his evil, and his power, and we might be afraid of that and think, man, the devil's going to try to get me to not follow Jesus. Maybe some of you kind of think like that. Sometimes we think about the world around us and think about it's going to pull me away from Jesus. Those things can be true, but what Jesus says here is the core thing that gets in the way is this. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. See, we have this desire in some sense, and many people had a desire to be near Jesus. They were interested in Jesus. They they were investigating Jesus. They saw things about Jesus that they liked and desired. And he says, okay, okay, okay. But if anyone wants to, which is assuming that many do, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. This is the thing that gets in the way of our discipleship. This is the problem of discipleship. Another way to say this could be this. We want self-fulfillment. We want 
our lives, ourselves to be fulfilled. We believe that life is about the freedom to fulfill our deepest desires and wants. It's even embedded into our constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What we desire, what we want most is self-fulfillment. The freedom to pursue our desires, our self. Think about even just some of these terms which are very popular and, and that we uh, look at positively. These are not negative terms in our culture, in our world. We, we look at these as positive terms, self-esteem, self-acceptance, self-confidence, self-compassion, self-worth, believe in yourself, sayings, trust in yourself, be true to yourself, love yourself, forgive yourself. These are many of the things that we value, that we look at as, this is a great list. You can see on this list themes of books, themes of movies. You can see every Disney movie that was ever made is some combination of, oh, let's connect this dot with this dot and that one with this one. You can see in, in most of the songs that are created, some of these themes. You can see, I, I just went on today, or not, not today, sorry, this week, I went on knowing that this would be the case. So I, I, I knew, okay, if I go on Amazon and look at the best sellers, I know already without even having to, to wonder that that's what the case is going to be. The number one bestseller of book on Amazon right now is this book. Listen, if you've read this, I'm not saying, I, I have not read it. I don't know anything about it other than I can tell you it's called Burn After Writing. Here is the description. Push your limits, reflect on your present, your past, present, and future, and create a secret book that's about you and just for you. Now again, I haven't read the book. It might be great. I don't know. But what I know is that the way that they are advertising it, the way that they are marketing it, the way that it is a number one bestseller is because it's a book about you and just for you. And even if you go down to number 15, a children's book, Harvey the Heart Has Too Many Farts. Sounds like a great book. Number 15 bestseller right now. If you never thought you could write a book because you didn't have a good idea, you don't have to have a good idea. You just need to know how to rhyme. And uh, I love the subtitle, A Rhyming Read-Aloud Storybook for Kids and Adults About Farting and Friendship. Couldn't that be the biography of all of our lives? You know? And here, here's, here's what it says. Just one of, the, one of the things, and again, I'm not saying this is all bad. I just want you to see how these are the popular kind of themes that we latch onto and view positively. Here is part of what the description is. Will he ever find someone who can love him the way he is? Will he ever find someone? I think the answer is no, if your name is, you know, the fart heart or whatever. But will he ever find someone who can just accept him, love his self the way he loves his self? Will he ever be able to do that? Let me show you some non-fart related things. <laughs> Barna did some research. Barna's a major research uh, institution. They did some research a handful of years back looking at people's beliefs. And they called it the morality of self-fulfillment. I've shared this in the past. I think it's just helpful to look at again. And this is what most people's moral framework is. 
This is what most people, this is a massive study that was done. Most people's moral framework, they titled the morality of self-fulfillment. Here is what people believe. These six core beliefs. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. Of course not, because they are from myself. My truth is my truth, right? We hear that all the time. So-and-so living their truth, good for them. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire the most. The highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Side point, that's impossible. Whatever you believe affects society. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. All of these make absolute sense if you believe the highest goal in life and what matters most is to be self-fulfilled. And it's not just the world out there that believes this. Pretty much lined up, not exactly, but very close, is practicing Christians. So this is not just what the wicked, evil world out there believes. This is what the wicked world in here believes. This is all adults and practicing Christians. This is the morality of self-fulfillment. If it feels, even just think about some of these statements. Man, it feels right to me. That's how I know this is good. It just feels right. Sometimes we might even more spiritualize that with peace. I just feel a strong sense of peace about it. Which is to say, it just feels right to me, so I know it's good. We may use language like, you know, you don't know what to do, you're not sure, just look inside yourself. Follow your heart, of course. Really, the greatest command right now in our world, the greatest command, all lines up with these things. The greatest command is to pursue your desires. And the greatest sin is to not do these things. It is to deny yourself the greatest sin is to not be yourself, not accept yourself, not follow yourself. This is the problem of discipleship. The most common philosophy in our world right now, the most common operating framework that pervades everything. Listen, you can't escape this. It's in every song, every book, every show, every movie, most teaching, most philosophy, most advice, most therapy. It's all, even in Christian circles often. You cannot escape from this. If you don't think that you are affected by it, we're, we're blind. It's everywhere. It's the air that we breathe and the water that we live in. We don't even recognize it. You might even see those statements and go, yeah, what's wrong with that? Yeah, of course that's what we're supposed to do. Because it's the water that we live in, not recognizing that it is very different from what Jesus says. It is the problem of discipleship because it's about saving our life. It's about keeping ourself. It's about gaining the world. Do you feel this in your life? Do you feel it around you? Like you go, yeah, I do see some of those messages. I do hear, do you, do you feel those desires within you? Do you say some of those things? Do you, is that, is that ring true? Do you want to save your life, to follow your dreams, to follow your heart, 
Do the terms that were up there make sense to you? And, and is that the operating framework? But if we take Jesus seriously, here's what he says. This is the challenge to discipleship. It is the thing, he says, that will, if anyone wants to follow after me, he says, this is the thing that will keep you. And it is the thing that most of us have bought into and that we are influenced by constantly, daily. It's the temptation that will keep us from experiencing life with Jesus in proper orbit. That's the problem of discipleship. So what is the pattern then? That's the temptation. That's the thing that gets in the way. That's the thing that that keeps us from what Jesus wants us to experience with him. What is the pattern of discipleship? And much of it starts with how you view God. How you view Jesus. Who is he? The question throughout Luke, we're we're now kind of almost at the end of chapter 9. So the question throughout Luke up to this point has really been focused on who is Jesus? That's been the question continually presented. At his birth, they say, who is this child going to be since there's so many kind of mysterious things happening around his birth? And then people continually ask him, are you this one? Who who are you? Who do you think that you are that you could forgive sins? Who are you? It's asked about 11 different times up to this point, something around who is Jesus? That's the question. And then this is really one of the final times it gets asked until his trial when they say, tell us plainly, who are you? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That really is the question. Peter answers him, God's Messiah. This is the question, but throughout Luke, most people got it wrong. He's a prophet. Maybe he's a teacher. Maybe he's a freak. Maybe, I mean, there's all sorts of things that people have thought. And we still do. We still often get it wrong when thinking about who is Jesus. Let me show you kind of one last study here. There was a, a massive study done um, about 16 years ago, in 2005. And I remember reading this when I was in college. This is called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This was the book that was made out of the study. It was done by a sociologist from Notre Dame named Christian Smith. He's one of uh, the most prominent sociologists. He's written several books on various topics. And he looked at the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. And what he said is this. The religion... And this was not just for Christians. This was a a massive study. All the news articles picked this up, said this. Here is the religion of the youth. Which, by the way, this this study came out 16 years ago. So if you're in your 30s, this is talking about you all the way back then. This is who you are, right? Who who I am. This This is many of us. And even if you're older than that, it's still, or younger than that, it still is affecting really our culture. Here's what he said the religion is. Moral therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Three kind of main tenets of the religion. A general belief that we should be moral people and God wants us to be good people. God wants us to feel good and that God exists. That's the deism, but he is not really super involved. Here's some of the, the quotes from this. A significant part of Christianity, specifically Christian, in the United States, 
is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that it's seriously connected to the actual historic Christian tradition, but is rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. And he talks about this is not its own unique religion, it's a religion that actually colonizes other religions. And so you could be uh, an adherent of Islam or of Buddhism or Mormonism or whatever it is, and this is actually your operating religion, even within Christianity. The central goal of life, this is what this religion teaches, if this sounds familiar, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And about God, God is something like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problem that arises, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves. That's who God is. God is someone that exists to make me feel better about myself, to help me fulfill my dreams, to help me fulfill my desires. Many times, even the operating kind of standpoint that even when we come to decisions would be to say something like this. I know God wants me to be happy. So this, 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 this must be okay. This thing must be all right. I know God wants me to be fulfilled. I know God wants me to fulfill my dreams. He wants me. I know that God wants that for me. So I know God wants me to be myself. I know God made me this way. The pattern of discipleship has to start with who we think that God is, who we think that Jesus is. And this is so important because Jesus says this. Listen, the question has been settled for you, Peter and my other disciples. The question has been settled. You are right. I'm the Messiah. But what does that mean? See, because people had a false expectation of what the Messiah was. So even though Peter gets it right that he's the Messiah, and even though we might get it right that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, we might get that right. You might have that right. Jesus says, yeah, but, but let me tell you what that means. You might believe that there's a God. You might believe that he cares about you. You might believe he wants you to live your life in some moral sense. You might get him right, kind of. But the question has been, who is Jesus? Once they answer, you're the Messiah, he says, okay, but let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what kind of Messiah I am. Let me tell you what kind I am and thus what it means to follow me. And he says, here's who I am. Here's who the Messiah is. I will suffer. I will be rejected. I will be killed and then raised. So if you want to follow me or if you want... If anyone wants to follow after me, this is going to be what it looks like. See, if if Jesus is just the Messiah of your dreams, the Messiah that helps you fulfill your goals, the Messiah that helps you be self-fulfilled, if that's what it means that he's God or Messiah or a loving God, if that's what it means, then all sorts of self-fulfillment falls into place. But Jesus says, okay, you know who I am, but let me define what kind of Messiah I am. Let me tell you what I mean, because that sets the pattern for our life. And the pattern is if we follow after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We can't have a Messiah that is, says, here's what it means that I'm a Messiah. I suffer, I'm rejected, 
and I'm killed, and then say, okay, so what it means for me to follow you is you help me be happy, you help me feel good about myself, and you help me pursue my dreams. He would say, um, that's really interesting logic that you have there. He says, here's who I am. Get who I am right. Here's who I am. And so here's what it means to follow me. It's the same pattern as his life. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's very counterintuitive, isn't it? Do you ever hear anyone in any of our songs, in any of our movies, in any of our literature that's not Christian, is this the message that you're constantly hearing? You know, you want to have a good life, you need to deny yourself. Does anyone say anything like that? What Disney movie have you watched that the moral was, you must deny yourself, and then the magic will happen? That, that never is the message. It's the exact opposite of everything that we are enculturated in. Jesus says, listen, I'm this kind of Messiah. I'm not the God that came to make you feel good about yourself. I'm not the God that came to just help you pursue your desires. That's not me. I'm the Messiah that will suffer, be rejected, and die. And so to have life with me is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Here's where I'm going. So to be a disciple is to go where I'm going. Can you even imagine, just try to think about how silly it would sound out of the mouth of Jesus. If in one of his conversations with someone, he talks to them and he says, you know what, really, you just need to follow your dreams. I mean, there's never a scene in the Bible, search the scriptures, there's never a scene in the Bible that gets anything close to what our main kind of operating standpoint is of just how many times did Jesus look at people and say, listen, just, just look inside. How many times did Jesus look at people and say, it doesn't matter what the Pharisees think about you. It doesn't matter what they, it just matters what you think about you. How many times did Jesus say anything close to that? Never. Jesus says the exact opposite of so much of what we hold dear. He says the pattern of discipleship is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Listen, it means not just aspects. To deny yourself doesn't just mean you say, okay, I won't do this thing or I won't do that thing or you know, I won't have an extra piece of cake or I won't. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, deny yourself. That's the core. That's the center. Not deny certain things, but deny yourself. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says this. I love the way C.S. Lewis says everything, but I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. He says the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions or fears to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are all trying to do instead, for, for what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life. We're trying to still do that and yet at the same time be good. 
We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that's exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. You can't say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to I'm going to try to follow these certain rules. I'm going to try to go to church and do these certain rituals. I'm going to try to have certain relationships. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to be myself. I'm still going to have my personal self-fulfillment and desires be what I'm hanging on to. And if I can fit that with you, Jesus, then okay. But that's really what I'm trying to do. He says, that's what Jesus says you cannot do. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my own will, shall become yours. Jesus doesn't want to torment you. He wants to kill you. That's bad news, maybe, and good news. That's what Jesus says, though. I don't want to just make your life harder. I don't want to make your money harder and your time harder and your moral decisions harder. Jesus isn't coming to try to make your life harder. He's trying to get rid of your life and give you a new life if I could, to give you true life. That's what he is coming to do. To have all of who we are revolve around him. Listen, if you're a Christian, have you ever, is is that how you think about what it means to be a disciple? Or do you find yourself in C.S. Lewis trying to keep myself and Christianize these things, but I still want myself at the core, and yet it seems like everything keeps colliding. My heart is heavy for some of you because I know that this is so often how we operate. And so much of the frustration and pain and difficulty we experience in Christianity is because of what C.S. Lewis is saying. It feels like we're being tormented instead of release, instead of letting death happen. Have you ever said to Jesus, no conditions, my life is yours, it's not mine anymore, my self-esteem, my self-acceptance, my self-confidence, my self-desires, I'm not looking inside, I'm not following my heart, I'm not believing you're a God that's here to make me happy, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing anymore, it's yours, no conditions. Have you ever said that? Is that your operating standpoint? Isn't it it these points in our life when it's hardest? When we say, okay, I want to follow Jesus, but this has to kind of come in alignment first. We hear his calling, but we have conditions. Okay, I will do that, but first this has to work out. I will follow you here, but first I got to get this down. First, I've got to do this. 
Isn't it these points that Jesus is actually speaking to you and you might actually be feeling the torment because you're not actually willing to surrender? It's these points of refutation. Okay, I want to follow you, Jesus, but what will they think? I want to follow you, Jesus, but what about my money? I want to follow you, Jesus, but what about, are you, or maybe we even look at the future, but are you going to come through? I want to follow you, Jesus, but there's a cost. We think so much of the cost. We think so much of the loss. We find ways to avoid and excuse. And he says, The pattern is this. I'm a Messiah that denied myself. I'm a Messiah that was rejected. I'm a Messiah that took up the cross. I'm a Messiah that died. So follow me. This is to deny ourselves. To take up our cross means we don't pursue happiness. The cross, for us as Christians, we're like, yeah, the cross, that's awesome. We have songs about it and we have necklaces about it. For the cross for them was an instrument of torture and execution. The most shameful thing reserved for the worst criminals. And so to say take up your cross was to literally say you may die, which most of them did, but it was also to say is your life committed to a daily death where you're not preserving your happiness That's not your ultimate aim, but you are signing up for and know you are signing up for death, rejection, sacrifice, cost every day. To deny ourselves, to take our cross, and to follow him. Not to follow our hearts. To follow our heart is the exact opposite of to follow Jesus. To look inside is the exact opposite of to look to him. To follow after him, and Jesus links, by the way, his words and him. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, there isn't really a distinction between who Jesus is and what he says. We follow him, which means we listen to him, we obey him. We go where he is going, and we can't claim. We can't claim to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian, if this isn't our life. Because this is what Jesus says it means. He says, come be with me where I'm going. That's the pattern. What's the promise of discipleship? What happens if we do this? Because I know I want you to hear the weight of Jesus' words, which are a call to death, a call to the cross. I mean, how do you think they felt? Again, without the cross sort of being a pretty imagery. How do you think they felt when Jesus said, oh, you want to follow after me? Yeah, 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 okay. Okay, you think I'm the Messiah? Yeah, 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 okay. Okay, so pick up your execution device and come after me. Huh? So I, I know it. I want you to hear the heaviness of his words, and it, for them, it would have even hit them harder. 
because it was the first time they're hearing it. But it's not just a call to self-sacrifice and denial and death. If we only see that, if that's your view of Christianity is, okay, it's a bunch of death and crosses, all right, whoopee. If that's your view, we actually are missing it. Because what Jesus says is, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. He is saying, deny yourself, lose your life. But when you do that, you actually experience it. You actually save it. You don't forfeit your soul. You actually gain all the things. See, the promise of discipleship is this. We don't want to deny ourselves, right? We don't want to deny ourselves. We want to keep ourselves. The promise of discipleship is what C.S. Lewis said. When you deny yourself, you get a better self. You get him. I, I think about this in some way like marriage, and I know not all of you are married, and some of you maybe are anti-marriage, but if you want to get married, or if you are married, or you're moving towards marriage, marriage is, or should be, if you're doing it right, a form of self-denial. You are saying, I'm getting rid of my independence. I'm getting rid of just life being able to be about my goals and my desires and my wishes and just about me. And instead, I'm trying to trade that in for something better. I'm trading it in for another self attached to me and becoming a new thing. I'm trading it in for that. I'm, you know, the old language, you know, kind of, whatever, uh, negatively for a wife is, oh, the old ball and chain. And absolutely, I love my ball and chain. I am saying I am linked to you, attached to you, connected to you, locked into you. And Jesus says, that's discipleship. Trade in your old self, lock into me. Experience life connected to me experience getting rid of your freedoms to experience more of me. So yes, you are losing this in a death to self, but only to gain a new self. That's one of the promises. And, and Jesus says this, and listen, none of us want death, right? We don't want to, and, and not just death of the physical sense, but we don't want to lose out. We don't want death to our time and death to our money and death to, we don't want death. If I just said to you, here's what you're signing up for, death. No one wants that. But Jesus says, yes, it is death. But I give through that death a greater life. Yes, you trade in these things, but you get a deeper joy, a deeper purpose, a deeper meaning. Some, I, I think about this sometimes. I think one of the, the ways to think about it is financially. If you decide to be a generous person, you give away a lot of your money and there's a death that, it, that you go, okay, I can't have these things. I can't do these things. I don't get this certain status maybe that comes with wealth. I don't, I don't get to buy all those Harleys over there. But I get the life of being able to see other people's lives change through my generosity. I experience a death with my money, but I get a life and the joy of being able to give. And I go, man, I was able to be a part of that and I was able to bless that person and I was able to see lives change here. We don't want death. 
But Jesus is saying through death comes greater joy, greater purpose, greater meaning, greater community. And think about this. He says, Jesus says the pattern is that he is going to be rejected. And to follow after him, we have to be willing to not be ashamed of Jesus. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be rejected because of Jesus. I don't, I don't want to say certain things and do certain things because of my faith that then people don't like me and, and they, don't, you know, they think I'm a jerk or they think I'm a bigot or they think, you know, who are you to judge me? I don't, I don't want that. None of us do, right? I hate that feeling. And Jesus says this. When you experience a rejection because of him, oh man, you experience a greater acceptance than you could ever dream. To have him say, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. You're mine. I accept you. See, I don't, I don't want rejection, but I want, the promise of discipleship is you lose yourself, but you gain his self. You experience death, but you get a greater and a truer life. You, you experience rejection, but you experience the deepest acceptance possible. That's the promise that he is giving to us. Jesus is not interested in just taking from you. He's interested in taking from you only to give you something better. He's only interested in us laying down our life so he can give us a greater life of how we are actually designed to be. He sees your life, and yes, he's calling you, lay it down, but only because he wants to give you something better. Last thing, the power of discipleship. Power of discipleship, how, how is it that we can do this or what enables us to do this? It's not just, and maybe even as you're hearing this today, it's, it's not just willpower, okay? I'm going to do it. Today's the day I follow Jesus. It's not, it's not just this willpower, unction, effort. We have to see who he is. If you want to follow the pattern of his life, if you want to avoid the problem and, and buy into and trust his promise, you have to know and see who he is. It comes down to a sight of him that allows you to trust him. That's why the next scene is what we looked at with the transfiguration. That's what this is called. They saw his glory. And the summation statement from the father is, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And Jesus just got done saying, here's who I am. And here's what it means to follow me. And you've got to imagine, maybe even like some of us, there's some fear with that. There's some, I'm not sure about that. Is that really what we should do? They see his glory and they're assured. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. See, the power for our discipleship is the same thing. It's to see him, to know who he is and to follow him. And, and on that mountain, with Elijah and Moses, kind of one of the shorthand statements that they used to talk about the Old Testament or just at that time their scriptures was to talk about the law and the prophets. And Moses and Elijah were really the two key figures that represented all of that. 
And so on this mountain, and there's so much in here, I could talk for two hours about just this transfiguration moment, but on the mountain, you've got the two key figures from the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, and you see Jesus, and he's talking with them about, it says, what he's about to accomplish about his departure in Jerusalem. And that word for departure is actually the word exodus, his exodus in Jerusalem. You think about Moses leading the children of Israel out of slavery into God's promised land. And so really what's happening here is this. All of the Old Testament and the disciples probably only in kind of small form at that moment are understanding and later would come to more fully understand. But what we can know is in that moment what's being shown by God is all of the Old Testament law and prophets and deliverance is now being realized in Jesus. That every promise that God ever made through the prophets is coming true in Jesus. That all of God's law and God's covenant with his people is now coming true in Jesus as the one that brings a new covenant. And all of God's promises of deliverance and exodus and leading his people into something greater and freedom from slavery and sin is now coming true in Jesus. This is his glory, and it's kind of a, a preview. Jesus is God and man, and, and here we get this preview of really who he really, truly, fully is in all of his glory. And they see him rightly for a moment. They see him amazed, glowing. You see, the power that enables them to follow Jesus into this life of denial and cross-bearing and death what enables them the power for their discipleship, for our discipleship, we have to see who he is. We have to listen to the voice of God that says, he's the chosen one. Chosen for what? Just he's, he's chosen to be the one that brings about all God's promises, brings about all God's deliverance, brings about God's covenant with his people. He's the one that has been chosen for this. We have to see him like that. Say, that's the one calling me. And then, to be assured, I can listen to him. To listen to him, he's trustworthy when he, when he says, here's the way to life. He's trustworthy when he calls us into death. We all want to know what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to have life with him. We all want that and, or are interested in that if you're not a Christian. We oftentimes get it wrong. We miss it. We're influenced by the culture around us. We're influenced by our own ideas, but this is what Jesus says. And it's only here, only in seeing who he is and knowing who he is and seeing the glory and the promises fulfilled, it's only there and then in following him that we find life and that we experience life as a disciple with him, not just disparate parts, but the totality. So here's what this means. I guess first is, have you trusted that Jesus is the one that brings life? And I don't mean that just as, a, as a, are you a Christian? I, I mean that um, in the sense of, do you believe that he is the way to experience life? Do you trust him that he is the glorious one that should be listened to? Or are you still clinging to yourself? 
That's something to pray about. We're going to take communion in, in just a moment, and I, I want you to pray about that. Have you trusted him? Where do you need to confess? Where have you been hanging on to your life? Where have you been trying to keep your life? Where, where do you need to confess? And to say, Jesus, I'm trying to hang on to this, and I'm, I don't want rejection, and I, I don't want to die to myself, and there's particular areas where you know that that's prominently true, and there's choices and decisions. Where do you need to confess? where you're still trying to hang on to yourself. Where do you need to ask for his help to follow his pattern into the life that he is calling us to? See, when we take communion, we are looking at not just Jesus on the mountain and his glory seen there in a shining face. When we take communion, we're seeing the ultimate moment of his glory. God's glory is his, his perfect goodness. On the cross, we see, we see that Jesus and his perfect goodness was rejected for you and me. He doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't first done. We see in his perfect goodness that he was rejected for you and me. And that he died for you and me. That he denied himself and all that he, all of his power and all of his seen and available glory, he denied, humbled himself for you and me. His body broken, his blood shed to forgive us of our sins, to lead us into life. He experienced death and then was raised. And he says, follow me, taste the death and experience the life. When we take communion, that's what we're remembering. This is the God we have. This is his glory. So take a moment and pray, whether that's confession or commitment or asking him to work. And then if anyone needs prayer for anything, if you would like prayer for healing or prayer for God to work in your life, myself and some others will be in the back and would love to pray for you. I'll pray now and then take some time to pray with communion. Lord, we thank you that you don't call us to anything that you haven't done first. Jesus, you did. We hear these words and they sound hard, but you did them. You did them for us. Thank you, Jesus.